The magisterial failure of Vatican II becomes evident when we continue to study De Verbum 11. But Pope Benedict's scriptural theology helps to balance the neo-Thomism excess, which was before Vatican II, all of which vindicates the trads. Praise to Jesus Christ. Jesus is king. He has ascended to his throne of glory. I'm Timothy Flanders. This is the Meaning of Catholic. This is Pope Benedict Vindicates the Trads. This is a conversation among trads for trads about traditionalism in conversation with Pope Benedict and Cardinal Ratzinger. So today's topic, we're going to continue talking about Dei Verbum 11, a continuation from last week. We talked about some of the aspects of this passage and why this is a de fide proposition confirmed by the Holy Office in the 1990, uh, 1990s. Uh, so we'll continue this. We'll talk about, we'll respond to a few of the things that uh, came up since last week. Um, before we do so, I want to remind everyone to please consider joining our guild. We have a, this YouTube channel is only part of this whole apostolate. We have an online community and we are working on... Um, forming further economic structures in a guild structure online, which supports your local community and your local parish economically, so we can work together against the Marxists. And that's what we hope to achieve uh, by your prayers. Uh, at, on our YouTube channel, we do not do any ads. We don't take any money from YouTube. And so we rely solely on the support of the faithful to have this apostolate. This apostolate is for the faithful to unite Catholics against the enemies of Holy Church. So please become a guild member and you also get extra guild content. So we're today on the guild stream, we're talking about E. Michael Jones. We're actually talking our two series, uh, this series, the Pope Benedict Show, and our series on the Jewish question. That series is, is only available to guild members. That is currently 12 parts. There's 12 part series on the Jewish question. Uh, and then we'll be talking to E. Michael Jones next Tuesday, but that'll be on the Guild stream. And then uh, today we'll be talking about E. Michael Jones as well. We'll be talking about uh, the Jewish question. How does that relate to Bishop Williamson of the SSPX uh, and what happened with him under Pope Benedict's reign? And then on Tuesday, we'll talk to E. Michael Jones about his newest article, uh, Joseph Ratzinger and the, and the German Problem. So on Tuesday, it'll be the Jewish question, the German problem, and Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger. So, and it'll be very relevant, obviously, to the German synodal way. So it'll be a really great show on Tuesday. Um, you can send your questions if you're a guild member. Please send your questions, and we can talk to Dr. Jones about those. And uh, we can also discuss things today. So, but that is only available to guild members. As always, if you can't afford to be a guild member, it's $5 a month or more. If you can't afford that, feel free to contact me. We could still get you a part of the guild. Uh, because that it's meant to help one another, help us, uh, help us help each other. So, uh, with that, let's get in back into our topic. Day verbum eleven. So we talked about how the inerrancy of Holy Scripture is a day fide proposition. I wanted to read to look at this. Uh, so day fide means that we are bound to accept it for the sake of our salvation. This is something that we have to believe. Now I want to I want to read from um, Providentissimus Deus, which was the um, which was the encyclical that first condemned the error of limited inerrancy, uh, which was propagated by Alfred Wazi. That's why we talked about last time about how a council can 
have a magisterial failure, meaning a, a historic, uh, they can kind of fail on the historical level, fail to combat a heresy, or even inadvertently promote a heresy, because it's saying something that's true, but is not clear enough or something like that. So that's what we're talking about with Vatican II, Dave, Verbal 11. Here's what uh, Providentissimus Deus says. So if you've got the, the latest edition of Zenziger, this is um, Denziger 3293, Leo the 13th. This is the ancient and unchanging faith of the church, solemnly defined in the councils of Florence and Trent, and finally confirmed and more explicitly formulated by the Council of, Va of the Vatican, Vatican I. These are the words of Vatican I. The books of the Old and New Testaments have God for their author. Leo XIII elaborates, hence, because the Holy Spirit employed men as his instruments, he cannot therefore say that it was these inspired instruments who, perchance, have fallen into error and not the primary author. For by supernatural power, he so moved and impelled them to write that the things which he ordered and those only they first rightly understood, then willed faithfully to write down and finally expressed in an apt words with infallible truth. Otherwise, it could not be said that he was the author of the entire scripture. So if you if there's a if there's a historical error in the Holy Scriptures, and by the way, somebody pointed out to me after the last show that the UCAT, if you've ever heard of the UCAT, it's a, like the youth catechism, actually has this heresy of limited inerrancy. It's right there in, in the catechism. It has a question in the UCAT that says, um, how can the scripture be true if not everything in it is right? Question mark implying that there's some sort of historical error or some scientific error or something like that. There cannot be such an error because if God is the author of the scripture, how could he possibly be then the author of a, of a historical untruth? Rather, Leo XIII in his encyclical points out that when, when the writers are describing something, for example, there's like when we talk about scientific things, uh, when the writers are describing something, like when we say that the sun sets, we are saying literally that the sun sets. Even if you believe in um, heliocentrism and you believe that the, the sun is at the you know the middle of the universe and the, the earth is actually revolving around it. So technically, the, the sun is not setting in that case, but you're still saying the sun sets because according to the what your senses see, that is correct. So you're just reporting what your senses see. So, for example, when the Bible says that there is a firmament or it talks about the waters above the heavens, meaning that there's waters like in the ancients, some people thought that there was a cone, there was a firmament and there was little holes that would go through. There was water above the firmament and the water would go through these holes. That's simply because they conceived it in their mind because they saw rain coming down. They're not trying to make a scientific treatise as to how exactly all that happens. They're just reporting. So that is true. That's not an error. It's not an error to say that there's a firmament. It's simply a manner of speaking based on what you see. And so this is the this is the truth of the scripture. And but more than that, the historical in, in particular, because we know that the scripture is reporting historical truths. Uh, but it also uses figures of speech. Like I was just reading in, um, I think, in the book of Judges, where it says so and so gathered an infinite number. Well, that's obviously a hyperbole. That's a figure of speech. We're not saying that there was some sort of infinite number. So if we understand the Holy Scripture properly, we do understand that it's entirely inspired. It's entirely without error. And this is a day fide proposition because otherwise God can be the author of error. And this throws into chaos really all doctrines. In many ways, the inerrancy of the Scripture is really the foundation of really all orthodox doctrine. Although if you read my book, obviously oral tradition is 
prior to the written word, but that's another matter. So um, I, I was talking to my friend Richard DeClue because um, he had commented on the last video uh, on a very important point, and he pointed out that the relatio of De Verbum clarifies that De Verbum 11 has no intention of preaching limited inerrancy. So just if people aren't aware, a, a relatio, a relator, at a council. So at the final final vote of the council, you have, you've got the final document and we're ready for the final vote. And what happens is there's a relator who makes a, a relatio. Relatio is his sort of statement that responds to all of the dubia of the fathers of the council. So the most famous one that has been brought into English is called the relatio of Gasser um, it, from Vatican I. Um, that one's been translated into English. I don't know if there's other relaciones that have been translated into English, but what happens is the relator to council says to the council fathers, okay, you have asked a question about this and this and this. Here's what we're actually voting on. Here's what it actually means. I'm answering all your questions to convince you to, to vote for this document. And I've, I'm answering all your questions. This is how it should be understood. This is what you're voting on. So there's an, basically an official interpretation of a council document at the council itself. So the relatio at Vatican II, De Verbum, clarifies that De Verbum 11 has no intention of preaching limited inerrancy. Um, now, which is a good thing. That's a good thing. We want, we don't want this ambiguity to be there. So the official teaching, as, as I said before, technically De Verbum 11 does not preach limited inerrancy, technically. But I'm saying that it is a magisterial error and here's what I mean by that. All right, I'm sorry, it's a magisterial failure. It's a historical failure. It's, a, it's an event where because of De Verbum 11, and because not only because of the document, but more importantly, because of the bishops, the bishops have failed to make sure that their theologians know Latin. If you don't know Latin, you can't even read all these relaciones. Um, Lumen Gentium says that you have to have the norms of theological interpretation. Well, if you don't know Latin, you're not going to know the norms of theological interpretation either. So bishops didn't let, I mean, there's a whole other show on the failures of Vatican II. And I, I think that um, the documents are minor compared to the bishops and what the bishops did after Vatican II, how they failed, completely failed. The bishops of Vatican II are the biggest cause, in my view, of the crisis. Vatican II itself could have been a lot less bad. But when we talk about this, the whole act of a council, the historical uh, event of a council, is both the document and the bishops who come home to their diocese and implement the document. But it's not only the implementation, it is the reception of the, of, of the it's not as if the, the document is perfect and you know all you have to do is implement it. I'm saying that the document is imperfect. It's incomplete. It's ambiguous. You have to have Latin and you have to have, have all these technical uh, you know, if you have technical degrees to be able to discern that De Verbum 11 is not uh, preaching this heresy. Um, I Someone gave me, uh, Jake Fowler gave me, who was it? Which scholar? Um, I'll pull it up here. Uh, one Another scholar who count, count, um, was over at Reason and Theology on this, Dr. Feingold, Lawrence Feingold. He has a book called, I believe it's Faith Comes from Hearing from what is heard. And he says that limited inerrancy is hotly disputed among theologians. Well, Pius XII says that it's already been often condemned before Vatican II. 
And, and, you know, if you go through these different encyclicals, it's quite clear. You don't have to have Latin. You don't have to be a theologian. You can just read these encyclicals. It's quite clear. And that's why Pius XII says it's already been often condemned. So there's no reason that this should be hotly disputed. But historically, we can point to the reason it, it became hotly disputed was because of Dei Verbum 11. That's the reason it became hotly disputed. Now, here as evidence of this, take a look at this book right here. Vatican II, Renewal Within Tradition. This is edited by Matthew Lamb and Matthew Lebrin, both great scholars. I'm not too familiar with their, their work, but um, people that I trust tell me that they're very good. And this, so this text is all about um, properly interpreting Vatican II. It's all about the hermeneutic continuity. It's all about, you know, celebrating Vatican II as it was supposed to be. And well, guess what? There's two, two articles in this text. One of them says that Dave Verbum preaches limited inerrancy. And the other one says that's wrong. The two, so if in a volume that great scholars were working to actually do hermeneutic continuity, these two different essays disagree with one another on this, this de fide point. That's a serious issue. Um, let me give you this. So Francis Martin, who otherwise is a great scripture scholar, I, I followed him for years. Rest, may he rest in peace. Um, Father Francis Martin, his essay is called Revelation and its Transmission. And then he just says, well, there's errors in the scripture. There's historical errors in the scripture, clear, clearly, according to Dai Verbum 11. And then um, the other essay is called Inspiration and Interpretation by Dennis Farkovsalvi. And he says that's an entirely error promoted by Raymond Brown. So th this is why this point is a magisterial error. If you have what, what we have analogously, we have the children are in the classroom and we have the magister, the magisterium, magisterium means teacher. So we have the children, the faithful in the classroom in the morning. And the magisterium says limited inerrancy is a heresy because as Leo the 13th said, limited inerrancy would undermine God as the author. And if we undermine God as the author, we can undermine pretty much any doctrine we want. So that's what the magister says in the morning. Now, in the in after lunch and recess, we get back from recess, we come back. Now the magister starts to say, God is, it says the, the what Dave Ermond Love says, it says that God is the author of scripture without error for, for the things that are for the sake of our salvation. Uh, so then... So then the faithful are confused in the afternoon. The magister has not clarified that so that it's clear for all. Because even in a, a book as you know conservative as an orthodox as this, we have different scholars who disagree with each other. Why is this hotly disputed? It shouldn't be. Before in the morning, the magister was very clear. In the afternoon, the magister has, and we, and we talked about it last time, Pope Benedict himself was given a dubia from the Synod of Bishops, and he didn't respond to it. That's what is causing this confusion in the afternoon for the students. So we've got a situation where we have a magisterial failure. Now, let's not become set of a contest. We don't need to become Eastern Orthodox if we have a magisterial failure. Because there's been other magisterial failures. I mean, we I, I always think of the Council of Ephesus because it, it pretty much... In, was going to cause a schism based on the way that St. Cyril acted 
431. The next council was in 451. Not not even a single generation had passed before they they the situation was so bad that they had to have a new council. Um, you know, Lateran 5. Lateran 5 was a complete magisterial failure because as a magisterial act, it completely failed to do anything to address the situation. And the Protestant revolt happened immediately after that, necessitating the Council of Trent, which finally solved the issue. So we don't need to lose confidence in the church just because there's a point in Vatican II which failed in some way to be magisterial to, in terms of what the magister does, the magisterium does is teach and make clear to the students of the faithful. So we don't need to deal with that. Um, but this is the situation. So that's what we talked about last week when we kind of we were trying to um, contrast between the historical issues with Vatican II and the ontological issues. Because technically, technically speaking, as Richard DeClue pointed out, technically speaking, Dave Verbum absolutely does not preach this heresy. Technically. But that's in its sort of ontological nature as a, an ecumenical council. It's not preaching heresy. But in its historical reality, the way it is de facto on the ground, it ended up promoting that thing. So what I'm saying is that there's two different forms of causality here. An ecumenical council ontologically can be entirely orthodox, as it is in this case, de variable 11. But then historically... In the situation it is, it could actually cause heresy. Just like, as I said last last week, if the Council of Nicaea came out and said, Jesus is a man, period, that would be an orthodox statement. But in context, it would be a heresy. So this is the sort of the, the contours of history that we have to deal with. And I think that many people don't like deal in the, in the nitty-gritty, messy history of the situation. And that's what causes this disconnect, you know, because people say on one side, well, uh, uh, the ecumenical council can never err. St. Ben Barbara Bellman says that ecumenical council can never preach an error. OK, well, that could actually be true. I mean, that that's not a, a firm proposition, but I think that's a, a the majority view. Um, but that could actually be true. But then it could historically cause issues nevertheless. And that's what we're kind of dealing with here with Dave Verbum 11. That's what we talk about with magisterial failure, a, a failure to teach, even though there's an ontological reality where the document itself is entirely orthodox. So this is the situation. Now, however, where does Pope Benedict come in to vindicate the trads here? Because we talked a lot last week where his inaction vindicates the trads. But in this case, I want to emphasize something very, very important. Because we've talked about in this series that there's a trad myth about Vatican II. The trad myth about Vatican II is that before Vatican II, it was all sunshine and rainbows in terms of theology. And then Vatican II just destroyed theology. Now, there's a grain of truth to that. There was a great deal of stability and there's a great deal of orthodoxy and all this great stuff going on before Vatican II. But there were also excesses. And one of these excesses had to do with Holy Scripture because the 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 means if you read my book holy holy uh, introduction to holy bible we go into much more detail here but um to to just break it down the idea of a theologian 
a theologian is the man who prays, the man who has union with God and thus has wisdom. He has union with God and thus he has wisdom. So we have the unlettered, illiterate St. Anthony of the Desert, who is shown to be more wise than the greatest philosophers because he has union with God, not because he has an academic degree. And what this means regarding scripture is that the theologian is the man who, first of all, prays scripture. Uh, they say that the early bishops were not ordained. They were not consecrated bishop unless they had memorized all the 150 Psalms. So first of all, the, the, the theologian is one who prays the Holy Scripture. First, the Holy Psalter, the prayer book of the church, and then the rest of Scripture. He prays the Scripture in worship and adoration and union with God. And then he meditates on the scripture and all of this within the church, because the oral tradition, the rule of faith is passed down so that he understands that he can read the scripture in an orthodox way. And then by meditating on the scripture, he brings forth wisdom, which is the fruit of his union with God, not the fruit of his academic degree. And that is the way that the fathers treated scripture. So scripture is the central soul of theology, holy scripture. It is the, the place of contemplation of the holy face of God out of which is wisdom. And the wisdom is the theology. That's how theology was done by the fathers, by the early church, by the desert fathers. When we read St. Anthony, um, that's how theology was done by St. Paul, by the New Testament writers themselves. That's how they did theology. They were meditating upon the Old Testament. And the New Testament is the theology of the Old Testament. By this revelation from God, Christ, in Christ, and this wisdom that came from this union with God. So the centrality of the scriptures, the centrality and primacy of the scriptures within the church, within the oral tradition of the church, not sola scriptura, not that nonsense for the Protestants. Again, read my book. We go into far more detail about this, but the centrality of the scriptures. So this comes out of the fathers. All the fathers are scripture scholars. They're meditating on scripture. And that's also the way that St. Thomas worked and St. Bonaventure worked. The scholastics also they had the primacy of scripture in order to get a, a degree, St. Thomas and all those men of that age, they had to write a commentary on the sentences of Peter Lombard and the sentences of Peter Lombard was a collection of patristic quotations about scripture. In fact, the, um, here's the, uh, here's, um, St. Thomas's equivalent to that is the Catena Aurea which is a patristic commentary on the gospels. And so what we have is the centrality and primacy of scripture. And that's what true scholasticism is and was under Thomas and Bonaventure and the later uh, Francisco Suarez and um, Robert Bellarmine, et cetera. That's how they understood scripture. But what happened in the 19th century and later on, even before, but later on, Neo-Thomism developed a rationalistic excess regarding the Holy Scripture. And this is actually goes back to, I, I think it goes back to, they say, between Bonaventure uh, and Thomas, because Thomas actually separated philosophy and theology into two distinct things. Uh, now, this can be over overstated, but the point is that um, 
there was a neo-Thomistic excess that was developing in the 19th century and coming into uh, the first quarter, uh, first half of the 20th century, where neo-Thomism had become so philosophical and so academic that it was becoming rationalistic regarding the scripture. What I mean by this, practically speaking, what you had was you had Thomas who were never quoting the scripture. Now, once again, we talk about excesses of this period. Gary Goulagrange is the best Thomas really of the 20th century. And so he, you know, read, you read three, three ages of the interior life and he, he's all about the scripture. He is fully theological in this sense, in the true sense of the term theological, meaning uh, a man who is in union with God and he brings forth wisdom from the scriptures, that type of theology. That's what Gary Lagrange did. But the popular Thomists out there during this time period, uh, we talked about this with Matthew Minard. You had Thomists who were getting a PhD like over the summer, over the summer, and then they would just read a textbook to their, their students and the textbook never quoted scripture. Again, go read St. Alphonsus. Even the late Saint, he dies in the late 18th century. St. Alphonsus's sermons, he's quoting Habakkuk and Nahum. When's the last time you heard a sermon quoting Habakkuk and Nahum? The guy is a theologian meditating on the wisdom of Holy Scripture. So there's this primacy of Holy Scripture. And that really developed to, to a great degree. Uh, with neo-Thomism, where people were just quoting, they were just quoting philosophical categories instead of the primacy of Holy Scripture. And this is where the overreaction of Vatican II comes in, because we have Henri de Lubac, who is the godfather of Ratzinger and Wojtyla and a lot of the communal guys. He's coming and saying, we're trying to restore the primacy of Holy Scripture as the patristics did, as the real scholastics did. He's saying that you neo-Thomists you're actually the ones who are new because you're doing theology in a way that Thomas did not do theology. You are quoting Thomas, but not imitating Thomas. Now, once again, to be fair, we need to realize that Henri de Lubac and these guys are, are reacting against the excesses. They're not reacting against Gregory Lagrange and, and people like him who are the true Thomas who are really being Thomas. So, I mean, there's, there's no problem with good Thomas who are really doing Thomism like Thomas did. We have what we have a problem with these bad Thomas, basically. And there were too many of them, apparently, because that's what caused this overreaction. And this is where Benedict comes in to vindicate the trads because he his scriptural biblical theology is what he is attempting to restore this true theology, this true meditation on scripture, the wisdom of scripture. And that is where we need to, as trads, we need to look a little bit deeper for the for the problems with Vatican II. Because as I've tried to say, is that Vatican II is, is this overreaction to an existing problem. So the problem is not Vatican II as such. It's the problem of, of, of a revolutionary period where the church is just trying its best to react to constant revolution in society and in souls and in morals and economics and everything, including theology. And so... Pope Benedict, even though there's some weaknesses, I think, what we talked about last week, some failures perhaps, or some oversights perhaps, where he should have acted and should have done this, his whole theology as a whole is a great help to restoring 
this truly traditional, truly trad method of theologizing that is according to St. Thomas, according to the great fathers of the church, really according to Gary Lagrange, who they're doing their the centrality of Holy Scripture as a as a um, means of prayer and union with God to the knowledge of God and um, union with God and wisdom. And so this is how Pope Benedict vindicates the trads by being trad himself in this sense. We talked about how Pope Benedict uh, Ratziger, as a young man, he was being trad in the 50s, meaning he was critiquing the status quo in Rome, which is what trads do today about Rome. But in this sense, he is also extremely trad. He's extremely traditional. He's very faithful to the orthodox traditional theological tradition. Um, so that is the show today. We've got a we've got a few questions, comments. Peter says, "Reality is there has been a systematic plot to destroy the Tridentine right." I can't remember if I quoted Ratzinger on this, but Ratzinger says exactly that. Oh yeah, it was on the SSPX thing. Yeah, a couple of shows ago on the um, Cardinal Ratzinger vindicates the SSPX. He says exactly that, Peter. It's in the uh, I quoted in that show with the page numbers and everything, but he talks about how there's the, basically this conspiracy of heretics who want to destroy the dogmas of Trent. And that's why they hate the Latin mass because it's a Tridentine mass. So very, very important um, that we understand that. And Benedict's the one who vindicates that. So we don't, we, we can go to him to, to quote this and, and prove that this is the case. So if y'all don't have any other questions, comments, I'm just going to close it out. Uh, once again, we'll have our, guild stream in about 15 minutes talking about e michael jones jewish question uh all sorts of very controversial topics like that <laughs> um so stay tuned for that if you're a guild member please send us your questions if you want to be a part of the guild patreon.com slash meaning of catholic so let's offer up a hail mary offer this up to our lady of fatima praying always for peace in ukraine for our ukrainian brethren uh, also for the shrine of Our Lady of Fatima, the Russian Catholic shrine in St. Petersburg. In nomine Patris et Filii Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus frutus ventris tu, Jesus. Santa Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in hora mortis nostre. Amen. Our Lady of Victory, pray for us. St. Joseph, terror of demons, pray for us. St. Anthony of the Desert, pray for us. In nomine Padre, sit for the Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Jesus is King.